Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray, as we've just sung, that you would give us hearts now ready to, um, ready to obey what we hear from you, even if that conflicts with what we feel or what our culture tells us. Help us to put you first, uh, knowing that you are our maker and our judge. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing how much you can communicate by the clothes that you wear. It's part of, what, uh, it's part of what's called our non-verbal communication. Let me quote from an article on the subject. Long before our voice is heard, our clothes are transmitting multiple messages. We use clothes for decoration, for sexual attraction, for self-expression and self-assertion. By our attire, we display our gender, our religion, our occupation, our social position, or causes with which we identify, for example, sports jerseys. Our apparel may express our group membership in our role or our role in society, for example, company or police uniforms. Many dress to impress, while others choose the reverse. They express their rejection by intentionally flouting accepted clothing norms. There's actually a lot that we can say through what we wear in our culture, isn't there? We communicate through our clothes. And here in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, Paul addresses the issue of what we say through our clothes. He addresses the issue of what we say through our clothes. And he tells the Corinthians to wear clothes that honour certain relationships. To wear clothes that honour certain relationships. Paul starts off by praising the Corinthians for all the fact that there are lots of problems and lots of things they're getting wrong. He's glad that they're remembering him, glad that they're trying to follow the apostolic teachings that he's passed on to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. Have a look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. And now Paul talks about these relationships these relationships that need to be honoured in the way we, we, we dress. He talks about these relationships. He talks about headship. He says that you can find headship in the nature of God, in the Trinity. God the Father is head of Christ the Son. Headship continues into God's relationship with man. Christ is the head of every man. And the same relationship is there in the relationship of men and women. Man, that is in context a husband or father, is the head of woman. Verse 3. Now, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, as you can imagine, in our culture, there is a stack of debate about what it means to be the head of someone. Uh, some people grumble about it, they complain, they whinge, they, they reckon that Paul is saying that uh, men are superior to women. But if you look at what he just says here, it can't be right. Because God is not superior to Christ. And, and that's what he says the relationship is modelled on. God is not superior to Christ. Jesus is perfectly clear that he and the Father are one. It's not about inequality. But... The notion of being ahead does indicate responsibility and initiative. And with that responsibility comes authority. You see that in the relationship of God the Father to God the Son. God the Father takes the initiative. 
the responsibility with his son. The father sends, gives his son. John chapter 3, verse 16. And Jesus doesn't grasp on to the equality that he has with God. No, no, he humbles himself and obeys, even to death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2. The son, he says, John 6, 38, the son comes to do the will of the father. There's no inequality, but there is an authority. You see it also in the relationship of Christ to us. As our head, Jesus takes responsibility for us. He takes us on as his people, becomes our leader and loves us for our good. And we, in response, should submit to his loving leadership. You see it in the relationship of the Father and the Son. You see it in the relationship of Christ and his people. And in the Bible, you see it in the relationship of husbands and wives. In the book of Ephesians and also in Colossians, Paul talks about a husband. <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Paul talks about a husband being the head of his wife. That means he needs to take responsibility for her. He needs to love her sacrificially, it says in Ephesians and Colossians. Like Jesus sacrificially loved the church to present us wholly before himself on Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, Jesus will take responsibility for us. And on Judgment Day, a husband will not just ha have to give account for himself and what he has done. As the head of his family, a husband will have to give account for his family for how his family served God, for, for the kind of family that he led. A husband has the responsibility before God to lovingly lead and serve his family for their good. And in response to that, wives are called on to submit to their husbands, to support and help their husbands in their joint endeavour to serve God as a family. The responsibility comes with authority. So that's the first point. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of each man. And a husband or father is the head of woman. Now Paul goes on to say that this should have implications for when we pray or prophesy, when we do our Christian stuff. Our prayer, of course, what's prayer? Our prayer is when we talk to God. And prophecy uh, right through the Bible, prophecy is when we speak God's word. So in the New Testament, in particular, it is where we share the good news about Jesus, where we explain the scriptures, when we teach God's word. Now, whether that's at home, or whether it's uh, over a coffee with someone, or whether it's in church or whatever, Paul says to the Corinthians that when they pray with someone, or when they prophesy to someone, they should follow a couple of conventions with regard to their dress. And if they don't, he says they will dishonour their head. Paul says that if a man prays or prophesies, literally, with something flowing down from his head, he will dishonour his head. Now, as you can see from the NIV, we're not exactly sure what it means to have something flowing down from your head. Uh, in the text, it says with his head covered, and that's probably right. It's referring to some kind of a veil. Although you can see in the footnote, it's possible to translate with long hair. Uh, either way, if a man does that, Paul says, he dishonours his head. What does that mean? Well, he's just told you who his head is. His head is Christ. So in other words, he brings shame to Jesus. Verse 4. 
every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. Paul then turns to the women and he says, if they pray or prophesy with their heads uncovered, they dishonour their head. Who is their head? We've just been told. They bring shame to their husband or father. Paul says, praying or prophesying with your head uncovered is as shameful as having all your hair shaved off. Verse 5. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It's just as though her head was shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. Now, to be honest, we've, we've lost some of the significance of some of these conventions. We don't know anymore the significance of some of these conventions. Uh, we don't know anymore what it meant for a man to cover his head in the first century when he prayed or prophesied. Uh, archaeologists have found uh, some items that show pictures of male idol worshippers covering their heads with, with a hood or, or a veil. So it may be associated with idolatry. That could be the issue. Um, similarly, we don't know what it meant for a woman in the first century to have her head uncovered. Uh, later, Paul's going to call it a sign of authority. So it's somehow related to authority, maybe by casting off the cover. It's saying, I cast off the authority of my husband or father. Um, although there's, there's some evidence to suggest that covering your head related to sexuality. One archaeologist puts it this way. I'm sorry for the archaeology speak, but here it goes. Uh, within the semiotic clothing code of first century Roman society... A veil or hood constituted a warning. It signified that the wearer was a respectable woman and that no man dare approach her as one that is potentially or actually sexually available. You see that? Uh, so it's saying you have, you're sexually available. You're not, you don't have a husband or father or something like that to look after. It's possible. That's what it means. We're just not sure, though. Uh, similarly, we don't know the significance of a woman having her hair shaved off in the first century. Uh, it probably means that a woman has rejected her femininity. There's some evidence in ancient idolatry of women who shaved their heads as a rejection of sexuality and gender. Um, but the shaved head could also be a sign of being a slave. In the Old Testament, um, uh, captured slaves in war had their heads shaved. Uh, having a shaved head, there's some evidence, could possibly even be the sign of being a convicted prostitute. Whatever it meant in the first century, it was obviously shameful. Nobody wanted to have it. At least nobody in the church wanted to have it. Uh, we've lost some of the significance of these aspects of first century culture, but what we can see clearly from this passage is this. Somehow, in that culture, a man praying or prophesying with his head covered was shameful to Jesus. And somehow, a woman praying or prophesying with her head uncovered was shameful to her husband or father. In verse 7, Paul says the same thing again. Men should have their heads covered when they pray or prophesy. Women, sorry, other way. Men should have their heads uncovered when they pray or prophesy. Women should have their heads covered. Uh, but this time Paul doesn't refer to headship as the reasoning. This time he goes back to the story of the creation of Adam and Eve. Uh, so back in the creation, in the Genesis story, in, uh, in creation, God creates Adam and he puts him in the Garden of Eden to work. Then God creates Eve. We just read it, didn't we? He, he creates her as Adam's helper to help him in the Garden. So in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about how um, male and female are in the image of God. But in Genesis chapter 2, it's slightly different. In Genesis chapter 2, God made Adam to represent him and to bring him glory on earth by looking after the garden. God then made Eve 
to help Adam do the job, to glorify Adam in that sense. And so there in Genesis 2, there is an order, an order of creation. And Paul says to the Corinthians, you must reflect this order by what you wear or don't wear on your head when you pray or prophesy. A man, no covering, a woman, cover her head to acknowledge the authority of her husband or father. Verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. You can see he's talking about Genesis 2. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Now, don't stress too much about that uh, reference to the angels there. Um, If you go to Galatians... You'll see in Galatians the Jewish tradition that God's law was put into effect through angels. So Paul's saying there in verse 10, for this reason, that is because of God's law, because of the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, and because of the angels who put God's law into effect in Jewish tradition, the Corinthian women should cover their heads. In other words, they should do it to reflect God's word, the created order revealed in his law. Paul now goes on to clarify a couple of things. Of course, this does not mean men are superior to women. Of course, this doesn't mean we don't need each other. Women don't just come from men like Adam did from Eve. Every man since Adam has had a mum. And of course, in Christ, men and women are equal. We are equally saved, equally heirs of God's kingdom. But Paul says the reality is everything comes from God. God made us. God made us with a relational order, that order is not overturned in the New Testament. And the Corinthians should reflect it as they pray and prophesy. Verse 11. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. He is the maker He is the judge. He is the owner. He has the right to order us how he pleases and to tell us how to do things. Paul now uses a couple of final arguments, uh, final arguments to press his point home. Uh, Firstly, he says to the Corinthians, look around you. You can see for yourselves that what I'm saying is right. He says, look around in your culture, first century Corinth. Men have got short hair. Women have got long hair. That shows the rightness of what I'm saying as well. Men uncovered, women covered. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things, and there's a lot of study into this expression, the nature of things. Most commentators seem to think now that he's talking about the nature of things in Corinthian culture. Well, of course, it's interesting how our culture is similar. But does not the very nature of things in Corinthian culture teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. Men uncovered, women covered. Look around in Corinthian culture. There it is. Corinthian culture backs up the point Paul's making. And so does the practice of the other churches. This was the common practice of first century churches, both in the Jewish churches, like Paul's own church, also in the Gentile churches, the churches of God. Men with uncovered heads, women with covered heads. Verse 16. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we, that is the Jewish churches, have no other practice, nor do the churches of God, that's the Gentile churches. Okay, can you see what's here in this passage? Let me, uh, let me run you through it again very quickly. 
Paul's talking about wearing clothes that honour certain relationships. So at creation, there was an order. Adam created to work for God, Eve created to help Adam. That creates a relationship of headship. Like God the Father is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of men, and husbands and fathers are the heads of their families. Paul says those relationships should be reflected in the way we conduct our Christianity, in prayer and in prophecy. We should not cast aside this order because of our salvation and our equality and our freedom in Christ. We, are, we need to honour this created order of relationships. For the Corinthians and other first century churches, that had implications for head coverings. For some reason, in first century culture, a man wearing a head covering was dishonouring to Jesus. For some reason, in first century culture, a woman not wearing a head covering was dishonouring to her husband or father. So, Paul says, men don't wear a head covering, women do wear a head covering. It's actually reasonably simple, what he's saying, isn't it? The question is, what are we going to do with it? <clears throat> what should we do with this passage? I reckon what we've got here is an abiding principle with a cultural expression. You can see it on your outline there. An abiding principle with a cultural expression. Uh, the abiding principle is these ordered relationships. Paul says that the way we were created institutes an order. Like God the Father is head of the Son, Jesus is head of man, husbands and fathers the heads of families. There's nothing cultural about this. Our, our culture hates it, but there is nothing cultural about it. This is how we are made. This is modelled on the nature of the Trinity. I know our culture doesn't like it. Our culture is wrong because this is an abiding reality. The principle of headship is an abiding one. And what also abides, what also remains is this. We need to reflect the principle in our Christian practice. Our Christian practice is not the time to cast off our created, our created order. When we pray with people, when we share the gospel, we need to do so in a way that does not dishonour our head. Men, we need to be so careful. We need to be so careful that when we pray with people, when we speak God's word to people, we do so in a way that is honouring to Jesus. We need to be so careful that what we say is correct. And what we say accurately reflects our relationship with him as our boss. And, but it's more than just our words. It's not just what we say. It also includes our nonverbal communication, including our clothes. Ladies, we need to be so careful that we pray and speak God's word in a way that is honouring to our husbands or fathers. And that includes more than just our words. It includes our nonverbal communication, including our clothes. There is a created order, and we need to honour it when we pray or speak God's word. We need to be orderly in that sense in our Christian practice. That's the abiding principle. Here in 1 Corinthians, here in 1 Corinthians, that abiding principle comes with a cultural expression. For some reason, in that culture, men covering their heads was dishonouring to Jesus. Maybe because that's what an idol worshipper does, or something like that. Uh, for some reason, in that culture, women leaving their heads uncovered was dishonouring to their husbands or fathers. Uh, maybe because it's saying, I'm sexually available, don't have a husband, something like that. Or maybe it was just a way of casting aside the authority of husband and father. In that culture, covering or uncovering your head was an important way to obey the abiding principle, to reflect God's order. 
But the fact is, in our culture, covering or uncovering your head does not have the same significance. I don't look at a bloke wearing a veil and think he's an idolater. I mean, I might think some other stuff about a bloke wearing a veil. But, 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 but if a bloke shared the gospel with me uh, with a veil on, I wouldn't be thinking, how can you talk to me about Jesus when you were dressed like an idol worshipper? If I were Jesus, I'd be ashamed of you. It's not, it's not, it doesn't have that semiotic code anymore, to quote the archaeologist. I don't look at a girl without a veil and think that she's sexually available or casting aside the authority of her husband or father. If a girl prayed with me without a veil, I wouldn't think, how can you pray with me when you're dressed so inappropriately? If I were your dad, I wouldn't let you out of the house like that. Do you see what I mean? The cultural significance of the head covering is gone. So I don't think it is right for us to just make this a rule today. Men, no veils flowing down from your head. Women, wear a veil. I mean, if your conscience says that's what you should do, it's been perfectly clear over these last few weeks, that is what you should do. If you think that is the right thing to do before God, do it. Don't let us stop you. Okay? You need to obey your conscience on this. But in my judgment, it's, it's missing the point. The question that we need to ask ourselves is this. How can we, in our culture, make sure that we're following the abiding principle here? How can we, as men in our culture, make sure that when we pray and when we speak God's word, we are honouring Jesus, and certainly that we're not dishonouring him? How can we, as women in our culture, make sure that when we pray and speak God's word, we are honouring our head, our husband or father, certainly that we aren't dishonouring them? Can you see the issue that we need to be thinking through and applying to our own culture? Of course, it's a much broader issue than clothes. We need to think very carefully about what we say. We need to think very carefully about the way that we say it. We need to think very carefully about the way that we behave if we're presuming to share the gospel with someone or pray with them. We need to watch both our verbal and and our non-verbal communication. We should be very careful to to speak and act with with modesty and with humility and take care to to be orderly in this sense. There's plenty to say, but in the spirit of 1 Corinthians, let's limit ourselves today to the issue of what we wear. Let me speak first to the men and then to the women. So, men... Are there clothes you could wear when you pray with someone or speak God's word to someone that show you are under the authority of Jesus? Are there clothes like that in our culture? There's not a lot in our culture, is there? It's not really something that we do. Maybe a Chatsworth Presbyterian shirt. Great thing to wear. Um, I I mean, lots of parachurch organisations, they... If they go out to share the gospel, they wear a special T-shirt or something like that. Maybe you've done that on campus ministry, something like that. You've worn a, you know, a Christian Union or a Navigator's T-shirt or something like that when you share the gospel. Uh, there's, there's wisdom in that, I think. But, but we don't really have specific signs to say that we're under the authority of Jesus in the way we dress, and, which means we've got to be all the more careful about our demeanour and what we say to indicate that we're under his authority. Uh, on the other hand, are there clothes that we could wear in our culture as men that would bring dishonour? to Jesus are there clothes we could wear such that if we're praying with someone or speaking God's word they would think if I were Jesus I'd be ashamed of you talking about me like that now I don't want to set down rules here but I think message t-shirts can be dangerous if you were wearing a t-shirt with a picture of Buddha and the slogan Buddha rules when you were praying with me I would be concerned okay Um, similarly some kind of satanic heavy metal t-shirt Iron Maiden or something like that with skulls and people killing you if you were wearing that while you were sharing the gospel with me I'd be going oh that's a bit weird Um, 
I remember one time, I mean, this is not just about in church, this is everywhere, but I remember one time in, in, in our church here at this lectern, a guy stood up to read the Bible and written in massive letters across his shirt was F-C-U-K. <laughs> I tried to make a joke of it. I said to him, mate, there is nothing more offensive to me than bad spelling. <laughs> but seriously, it was pretty weird and no one was thinking about him reading about what he was reading. In fact, if I can go out on a limb here, I would say that message T-shirts are nearly always a bad idea if you're up front in church. They are designed to draw attention to you, when our job here is to draw attention to Jesus. Again, I'm not pretending to lay down rules. We just need to be very careful that we are honouring Jesus when we pray or speak his word. So we need to think about what we're wearing. Okay, ladies. Are there clothes you could wear that show you're under the authority of your husband or father? Clothes that show your respect when you're praying with someone or sharing the gospel? Again, again, there's not really that much in our culture, is there? It's not really something that we do in our culture. Maybe a wedding ring? Possibly. Uh, Maybe in your... In your marriage, you wear a special article of clothing that was a present from your husband, a locket or something like that, and that that kind of reminds you of the relationship that you're in. Um, Maybe your dad gave you something and and, and you wear that. But, But there's just not much of it in our culture, is there? Which is why we need to be all the more careful about showing respect to our husbands or fathers in the way that we speak, when we pray or prophesy, and in our demeanor. I vividly remember a mate of mine telling me about... uh, um, a, a lady in his church who prayed when all the men had just come back from men's convention. And she stood up and she prayed. She said, thank you so much, God, that all the men in our church went off to men's convention. We pray that now they'll finally get their act together and start loving their wives like they're supposed to and stop being so hopeless and ignoring their children all the time and just working and not doing a good job. We pray that they'll start to finally get their act together and do what they're supposed to be. It's just not the time. Okay? It's not the time to be disrespecting your husband or father. We've got to be so careful in our words and in our demeanor. And I have to say that the vast majority of ladies I deal with in our church, I, I really love the way that you speak of your husbands and, and of your fathers with respect. I think it's a wonderful feature. Uh, on the other hand, are there clothes you could wear that would bring dishonour to your husband or father? Uh, at the risk of being totally countercultural, the answer is surely yes, isn't it? Uh, that T-shirt that says, I'm with stupid? No, not really. Let's just not have that one. Um, and again, this applies to more than just when we're at church, and it applies more than just to modesty. But remember, the archaeological evidence is, is that taking off your veil is an indication of sexual availability or something like that. I don't want to set down rules about this, but we do, as both men and women, but let me talk to the women, we do need to think about modesty. Uh, at church, especially in our culture, there are a few times when I've felt the need to chat to girls at church and say something like this. Thank you so much for leading singing today. Love the way you're singing. You've got a beautiful voice. But you do realise that when you wear that skirt, the vast majority of blokes in the church are thinking about your legs and not about Jesus. Uh, The magazine Cosmopolitan is not exactly known for its conservatism, but even they get this. So let me quote at length from a 2013 Cosmopolitan article. It's called, (laughs) How to Dress for Church. How to Dress for Church. Like a good Catholic girl, I went to church on Sunday. I went to church on Sunday. And as I was trying to concentrate on the Mass, a girl stood up and all I could think was, did she go to the wrong place? 
Obviously, she was not dressed appropriately for mass. A tight dress with over-the-knee boots screams more clubbing than church, if you ask me. So here are some tips. Make sure your dress hits you right on the knees or below. I would stay away from dresses that are too short or too tight. Add a cardigan. Think Michelle Obama. (laughs) You can wear your jeans or pants with pretty much everything. Just make sure you don't wear crop tops, spaghetti straps, or show too much cleavage. Tip, leave the high stilettos at home. As much as I love my prosty shoes, I don't wear them to church. Instead, try heels that are lower than three inches. Pumps are a great choice to wear with a shift dress, a pencil skirt, or pants. Other pieces to stay away from are shorts, leggings, tight or short dresses and skirts, sandals, flip-flops, and, of course, see-through blouses. I don't know what the vast majority of those things even are, but, <laughs> but it sounds like sensible advice to me. You can see the issue anyway, can't you? When you're praying with someone, when you're speaking God's word, ask yourself the question, am I distracting? Would my dad be pleased to see me looking like this? Am I honouring my husband by what I'm wearing here? Friends, as Shakespeare wrote, clothes make the man... That's a bit overstated, but the reality is your clothes speak volumes. They are a significant part of our non-verbal communication. And here in God's word, God is calling us to honour our relationships by the way we dress. Let's pray, and I will give you a chance to ask questions. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has taken responsibility for us as our head. We thank you that he will answer for us on Judgment Day. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will help us to submit our lives to him. We thank you, Father, for the relationships that you have put us in, in families and in church. We pray, Lord, that we will honour and respect the others in our relationship. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us to think very wisely and carefully with our verbal and our nonverbal communication about how we can uh, be orderly in this sense, in reflecting your created order. Give us strength in this. Lord, we know that this is completely countercultural, perhaps even contrary to what we think. We pray, Father, that you will help us to, uh, to submit ourselves to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.